We are out of Genesis 3. We are into Genesis 4. Crazy. I appreciate your guys' patience as we rung the truths of what happened in the fall as we rung them out to understand the world that we face today. By the way, you know, I failed to mention this. There are outlines on the table there if you want to pass those out and follow along with them. Um, and a lot of times I fail to introduce myself just because I always assume everybody knows me. Good to see you again. Uh, Keith Pond, uh, just for name's sake. Uh, last week we concluded our examination of the fall of man by looking at the consequences. We finished up dealing with broken marriages. Uh, we also touched on the broken me and the broken you. <laughs> um, it, is, it is one of those things that if, if anybody is going to be completely honest with themselves, they can't deny to look in the mirror and go, what's wrong with me? To look in your heart and your soul, why did I do that? Why did I think that? Um, what have I done? But even in the darkness of all of the brokenness that we looked at, the thing that shines through in all of this is a great gospel hope. And that is God is not finished with us. God is not finished with his creation. God did not just scrape the earth off and start with something else. Um, he promised even in the curses, even in the consequences, that there would be a restoration. That the one who has brought destruction upon the earth, that would be Satan and ultimately ourselves. He would be dealt with and we would be restored. So um, as we move into chapter 4 and in the challenges with children, we see that God's amazing grace continues. And Katie even brought this up on, on Wednesday night. If you read through the Old Testament, a lot of people who don't understand God's word will say, oh, it's judgment, it's the God of wrath, and blah, 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 blah. it's ugly, and it's terrible. And um, No, it's not. If you read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you see God's great grace, God's great provision for a people who don't deserve it. That he makes a way for them to be able to come to him. That he makes plain that there is a time where his judgment is going to come. You can't just, you can't just keep poking the dog until the dog's finally going to turn and snap. God's grace is infinite, God's mercy is lavish. But God, in being also righteous and just, has a line where when you cross it, the hammer will fall. And that's, that is a sobering truth. Um, 
So as we, as we continue on here, and as you yourselves hopefully read through the Old Testament from time to time, I hope that, that um, the evidences of God's grace will saturate your soul and, and nourish your soul. We're going to pick up uh, here with Cain and Abel here in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, we'll start out reading verses 1 through 7. Uh, would somebody read that for me, please? Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Okay. King Nabal. First offspring recorded in Scripture. Here, um... It is interesting to note uh, who names them. It doesn't say, but it says, She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And the, the name Cain there is... The word forgotten. You see this in, with uh, Jacob and his wives, Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah, that the wife there is the one who has a large hand in the naming of the child. Uh, I don't know that that is uh, stated. It's not stated anywhere in scripture that the wife would so do that, but you see that often through the child in the womb that somehow, some way, she is the one who influences uh, how the name is going to go. Anyway, that's just an observation uh, there. What was, uh, what was the role of Cain and Abel once they grew? They were workers in where? Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. Okay. Which one's better? Say what? I said God tells us the answer to that. The man of God was better. The man was commanded to, to work. Absolutely. So they were equal. Yeah. Okay. What are they both doing? They are both having dominion. It is their part in God's command to them to have dominion. So they're working. Cain happens to be the farmer there and able to be the shepherd. No judgments are made. And we see, actually, that man is having dominion. So that's a blessing. That's a good thing. Life is good. Wonderful. Uh, in verses 3 and 4, we see that in the course of time, both Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord. Why? Because they wanted to. Thank you. It doesn't say... It doesn't say why they brought 
an offering to the Lord. Where did they bring it? It doesn't say. They brought it before the Lord. Okay. Um, how? So there's a lot in here that we don't get. Were they commanded of the Lord? Again, it doesn't say, but from the consequences, from what we see as far as the fallout, we see that there may have been something to indicate the sacrifice that was to be brought. Why would I say that? Because there was displeasure and pleasure from God. Okay. And once again, it doesn't say specifically why God was displeased with Cain's offering of the fruit of the ground or was pleased with Abel's offering of the fruit of the flock. There. Are grain offerings inherently bad? How can you say this? Because it's commanded under the law of Moses. It is, absolutely. Grain offerings are one of the offerings that the Jews were to bring before God in accordance with the law. So you go, okay, so it's okay sometimes, but for whatever reason, here it was not a favorable offering in the eyes of God. So... I can't say this with certainty, but you would, God is, let's understand this. God is not capricious. God, God has purpose. All of his ways are righteous. Uh, in him, there is no shadow. There is not even a hint of darkness. Jesus even threw it before the masses and said, which of you convicts me of sin? So there, there, there isn't any. So it would seem that if one of my children came before me and I disciplined one and didn't discipline the other, the one I discipline would have to know what he was supposed to do and didn't do it for me to discipline them. Possibly. Or, did you say something? Or, it could be this is how God is going to let them know what a proper offering is. So perhaps they felt that, you know, God has been gracious to us. Look at all that he has provided. Well, let's bring an offering to God. So they bring an offering to God, and Abel's was accepted, and Cain's was not. And so now they go, whoa, maybe we could learn from this and go, it's, perhaps it's the animal sacrifice that he wants us to bring. Okay, as they try and figure out the mind of God, but... In God's word over and over again, God says, the reason I give you the prophets is because I don't do a thing without telling you. So I, I can't think 
that God is having them just grope for him and trying to figure out how he wants them to worship him. It would seem more likely that God had indicated the type of sacrifice he expected and Joseph, go ahead. When you consider the most cataclysmic event in Adam and Eve's life, probably up to this point, even in Genesis 4, 1 through 7, would be them getting kicked out of the garden and the fall. And in the midst of that, them becoming naked, realizing they're naked, being clothed for the first time, being introduced by God to sacrifice. And, and Good. Uh, so it's hard not to see that that context would inform this Good. situation here. What, was it just unrecorded that Adam and Eve brought offerings to the Lord mm-hmm. between three and four, and they're just kind of following the pattern that their parents gave them? Yeah. Unknown. Yeah. I mean, how much time has passed? These guys are already working the field, so these guys are grown. So we get nothing of childhood, and that's that's true of so much of the narrative. I mean, even if you think of the Gospels, and think all that we have on Jesus Christ and John goes on to say man if I had recorded everything the world would not hold the books of all that God the Son has done but we also know that they were originally created in the image of God so there's Mm -hmm. something that they have some understanding like we have some understanding of what God wants and once man ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he did kind of have a conscience, so he kind of knew what was right and wrong. And we all do. Sometimes we make excuses for it so we don't see it, or we blind mm-hmm. ourselves, but, but naturally we do have an inherent sense of what is right and what is wrong. Okay, so you get a ticket. You get rebuked by a boss. As a child, think back to childhood. And mom or dad was displeased with you. Um, What should such a correction, what should such a rebuke, what should such a thing bring to us? Repentance. Okay. And a change in behavior. Okay. Which is inherent in the word repentance. There should, be, there should be a regret, a sorrow for what I have done. But that sorrow, as we've talked about here oftentimes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, is going to lead in one of two directions. That sorrow, if there is sorrow, is going to lead to destruction in that you're just going to continue to, I'm terrible, I'm the worst person in the world. And you're going to go on to destruction as Satan would like for you to do. But hopefully that regret leads to repentance, which is a change of behavior. Which is basically what God told Cain is, if you do well. Yep. So that's what should happen. God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews chapter 12. No discipline is pleasant at the moment. Some of it might seem harsh and extreme. But God disciplines those he loves. He's treating us as children. If he doesn't, then he doesn't care about us. So even here, we haven't gotten to it yet. Well, I'll I'll stop. Because that gets into God's great grace to our Cain. So that's what should have happened. What happened to Cain when God went, not good? 
sorry. He became angry. Angry. His face fell. <coughs> I mean, people don't raise their face when they get angry. You know, you see in the movies all the time. The head goes down, the lights shine. Uh, it's dark. His face fell. He became angry. Um, parents, have you ever disciplined the child, said no, and rather than the whole repentance thing, you just stinking poured kerosene on that fire? And they get angry instead of regretful? It's a terrible thing. Why is that? Why? Why do we get angry? Why might we get angry? Might, why might that be a natural response for us? It's the nature. I mean, it goes all the way back to that. I mean, you could take it as pride or whatever, but it's basically the same nature. We get angry because things go out as our way. Okay, yeah, let's, let's try and think of it in the person's, get in their skin for a minute. And he brought an offering. Yeah. Apparently in his eyes was awesome, but the Lord said, he ain't going to cut it there. And so his, honestly, his face just like, Just wasted, I wasted my time. I think perception, you have your me-verse. So naturally, you start to build your own measurement devices of, I'm this good, I do these good things, and so there should be some type of reward or an award for me doing those things and acting these ways. And so we kind of put God to the side, and that me-verse gets more important. And so when you get slacked, you really take it hard, or you can't take it hard. I'm thinking what I did was great, and I got smacked down for it. Well, it's not me. What does this indicate here with regard to, and this is like the first glimpse of it, maybe with Adam and Eve putting on leaves, but what does this hint at with regard to approaching God? Uh huh. Well, it wasn't. So you know, they don't. They don't believe him. He's not before you. Okay. What does this say about religion? What does this say about how man is to approach the living God? We do what God says. We do it on His terms. We approach God on his terms, not our own. That is, that is deep in the law. I'm, I'm going through. So you're not saying about what, this, what this is, where the reaction of the person to God. You're saying, where you're saying that our reaction should be to God. No, I, I, had, I had kind of transitioned a little bit. I was talking about why we get mad, but then... I was thinking about what's going to happen on Judgment Day for all of the Christian churches out there 
where the people come before God and God goes, depart from me, I never knew you. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? He goes, I never knew you. And in hell, they are going to be just crying and gnashing of teeth. Leviticus 21. I'm going to just read this to you. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron, saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. Aaron's, Aaron's lineage was the priesthood. Okay, none of your offspring who should be priests, who has a blemish, can do this. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease. Or, you get the idea. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God both the most holy and the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries. I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who sets them apart. How do we approach God on his terms? Well, you know, I'm just pretty, I'm a pretty good person. That's not how you approach the living God. Well, you know, I, I, I burn incense to my ancestors and, and pray to my ancestors and, you know, or I go to church. Maybe I'm a Christian. I go, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I go to church, but then, uh, you know, I am adultering my wife and... Um, I'm stealing from a job and my life, when you look at it, <coughs> is a life contrary to God. I come to him and offer praises with my lips, but my heart is far from him. Really got nothing for his ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You see that right here in Genesis chapter 4. You may come, you may bring an offering, you may bring an offering that is acceptable to me. And if, if, if I tell you it's not a good offering, don't get your knickers in a knot. You know, just go, okay. I'm sorry. My bad. My bad. Own it. Repent of it. And bring a good offering. That's not what Cain did. So Cain, Cain gets hacked. So first of all, you see the grace of God in rejecting Cain's sacrifice. He could have gone, 
Wrong sacrifice. Doink. Done. Unacceptable. Fire and lightning from the heavens. But he doesn't do that. He just, he rejected it. So in verses 6 and 7, we see great grace poured out on Cain. So here's Cain with his arms folded, shoulders hunched over, scowl in a stew way away from Abel because he's got nothing for Abel right now. And he is just, you can see the smoke. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Like right here, I'm giving you the opportunity to see you're a dope. You know, come on. Why are you, why are you so upset about this? Repent and return to me. You can, it, that's there in this question. <coughs> Bless you. Thank you. Then he guides him with a consideration. If you do well, will you not be accepted? So again, there's another implication that he knew or should have known what he was to bring. If you will do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, okay, so... He, he asks the question. He provides him a consideration to go, hey, think about this a little bit more. And then he provides a huge warning. Sin is crouching at your door. You are at the precipice. Its desire is to master you. But you must rule over it. What great grace. So Cain takes the great counsel of the Lord and rises up and slays his brother. No detail. Really out in the field. And he kills Abel. And the Lord said to Cain, how soon after? We don't know. And much like the previous interchange, he starts with a question. I give you the opportunity, just like he started with Adam and Eve. Where are you? That's what he said to Adam and Eve. Where is your brother Abel, Cain? I certainly know where he is. Why don't you tell me? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Strike two. And three. Yeah. Yeah. Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Okay, again, we go, oh man, that's really heavy. And that's what Cain's going to say. Cain's going to go, dude, that's really heavy. You're driving me away. But again, 
This is God's great grace to Cain. He doesn't smite Cain. He doesn't destroy Cain right now. The imposition that's going to come at the end of Genesis, or at the start of Genesis chapter 9, where God is going to give capital punishment to men, he's going to delegate the death of men, the murder of men, to men through execution. God does not accomplish here immediately. He shows grace toward Cain. Once again, as the ground is already cursed, Cain's is like now doubly cursed. And this is an interesting thing to note, and that is God's dealing with the ground. Land gets cursed when innocent blood is spilled upon it. The blood cries out from the ground. You see that throughout the law. You see that in Romans chapter 8 as the earth itself groans and waits for the day of redemption because the curse is upon it as well. Restitution must be made. He's now a fugitive in verse 12, a wanderer and a fugitive on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. From your face shall I be hidden. A fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So he recognizes the consequence amongst his fellow men of what he has done. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. Um, woe to those who try and figure out what the mark of Cain was. You know, I, you ever, there's a, when I was a kid, I remember seeing a man for the first time with a port wine stain on their face. That's like, whoa. You look to your mom and go, what's Consider it a, a mole. It's like a mole, but God creates each different. These are not, it's not the curse of Ham. It's not the mark of Cain. God's word doesn't say on that. So don't, don't surmise. You end up making a mess. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod to the east of Eden. So what do I learn from this? What are some truths you can get from Cain and Abel? Yeah, God, God is not a one and done God. What a huge blessing. Now I can't always say that. I don't, I don't know, know where God's line is for each one, and I would say it's different for each one. Ananias and Sapphira, boom. They lied to God in the bringing of their offering to the apostles, sold their land, kept part of it, and said, here's all of the sale of the land. And said, you have lied to the Lord. 
wasn't that they kept part from themselves, but they lied about it, and they fell down dead. First, first Ananias, and then Sapphira. So anybody who lies in church is going to fall down dead immediately. No, that's not what they No. But the consequence is real. The line is out there. So, you know, so A, God is not a, God is not a one and done kind of God. But B, the consequences of sin against the living God are real. They were real and horrible for Cain. And they are real and horrible for us. In God's economy, most of the time, you will not be relieved of the consequences of your sin. And one of the worst consequences of your sin is between your ears. Because you've got to live with it. You will live with it. And a lot of times, those you love may live with it. Which is why it's such a huge responsibility for him and for me within the church. Because if it's us, then it not only affects me and my family, but it affects all of you as well. But that's not just true of me and I. That's true of all of you. Because we are one body. Here. We are a body of believers united by the Holy Spirit. We are a body. So if one part hurts in the body, guess what? The whole body is now having to limp to take care of that leg that isn't functioning so well. So, you know, has, has God ever told you, hey, beware, sin is crouching at the door? Anybody ever have one of those experiences where God... You hear his voice and he says, yeah, I am. But I am right here. God speaks to me all the time, right here. So what do I do with these warnings? What do I do with these exhortations and encouragements? Go this way, don't go this way. Live like this, don't live like this. Man, we would do well to hear and heed what God has said to us. Unlike Cain, don't be like Cain. You know, that kind of goes without saying. Any any thoughts on Cain and Abel before we move on? Or questions? I Joseph. Have a question. Joseph first. I think the grace towards Cain is really amazing. I think we're highlighting that well. I think it's also important to remember that God showed grace to both of them, to Abel and to Cain. It wasn't that Cain was better than Abel. Uh, sorry, it wasn't that Abel was better than Cain, but Abel's sacrifice was better. Mm-hmm. So it's different than receiving grace mm-hmm. from Good. the Lord, although the, the emphasis is on, on Cain here. Good. Did the, kind of the, the play on firsts in these verses, Cain being the firstborn, and just the, the sequence of how it's presented in the, in the verses, Cain brings the sacrifice first, but Abel brings the sacrifice of the firstborn huh. of the sheep. So wow. That's interesting. Wow. Huh. All right, moving on to chapter 5, um, on the back there, essentially we're going from Adam to Noah here, and you go, oh, okay, you read through one chapter, and you go, hey, from Adam and Eve to Noah, 
And you can see there on the math, on the little chart that I gave you, and I wish a uh, little matrix had, uh, the lines had showed up. But you can see if Adam was born on year zero, and you can see the age of each man when their son was born who is specified here. If you do the math, it is 1,600, 
So with Lamech having two wives, with Lamech killing a man, you can see sin is doing, sin is alive and well in the earth following the time of Cain and Abel. 800 years later. Good. I mean, it's really, it's, it's helpful to imagine, you know, the procreation and you go, how can there be so many people on the earth? Like, who did Cain marry? His sister. Well, it doesn't say that. I know. Who else was there on the earth? There's Adam and Eve. Well, they had Seth, too. I know. Did they have other children? Yeah, most definitely. If God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and how long did Adam live? <laughs> Adam lived for a long time. There. So, 930 years Adam lived. I think he probably had a few children at that point. And so you continue to have children and procreate, and you start to fill the earth. Seth comes to Adam and Eve in verse 25. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son. This is after the time of Cain's death. So again, Arnold just mentioned 800 years as far as Lamech. Now we're going back. You know, God's kind of given us this narrative, and let's go back, by the way. And Adam knew his wife, and here we have Seth. And Eve said, God has appointed, what Seth means, for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And notice the end of verse 26. What do you think that means? At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay. Maybe revival in the land, maybe a turning back of hearts at that time and in that season. Um, maybe because of Abel's example, that it comes down to go, hey, let us worship God aright. Perhaps. Um, if we can think that maybe shortly there after Seth was born, shortly before that. There's a lot we don't have. Okay. Chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man. And they were created. What does that sound like? Yeah, it sounds like chapter 1. There. It's almost like a reiteration of chapter 1. And so... Many scholars will think that Genesis is a hodgepodge. But you see that there is a very clear creation and structure to the narrative. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, in verse 4, these are the generations of the heaven and the, and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
In Genesis chapter 1, we have kind of a macroscopic view of the creation. In Genesis chapter 2, we zoom in and we get the microscopic view. Let's go into the particulars. Okay, and so we have been in some very particular particulars with regard to Cain and Abel and Lamech and what's going on there. And now God is going to zoom back out again. Go, here are the generations of Adam. And, oh, by the way, let's start back in chapter 1. This is the commands that I gave them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Male and female is how I created them in his likeness and in his image. And so from chapter 5 there and talking about Seth in verse 3, all the way through the rest of the chapter, you have that breakdown of so-and-so begot so-and-so. They were this old. They lived this many years later. And they had other sons and daughters. And then so-and-so begot so-and-so at this age and lived this many years later and died at this age and had other sons and daughters. All the way down. And you go, this is one of those things where you go, oh, this is one of those sections in the Bible where you might want to just go and skim it. So this is where I would encourage you almost to go, where you want to run, take time and smell the roses. If you want to race through this section of scripture, just slow it down a little bit and go, hey, what is here? What is here? And so when we look at the years when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son after, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. How concrete is that? It gives you a number. And oh, by the way, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. This is incredibly specific. And again, doing the math, uh, boom. 1,656 years. So... Noah was born in 1056, and the flood came when he was 600 years old. So that's what the 1656 is there at the bottom. That's when the flood came. After Adam, after Adam's creation, based on this, the flood was 1656 years later. Is that true? Ish. Ish. What do you mean ish? 1656-ish Yeah, okay. Give or take days. Maybe a year dropped if my math was bad. I used an Excel spreadsheet, so it should be pretty close. <laughs> well, is 130 years 130 years in one month? Or is it 130 years in seven months? Because when you take all these generations, that can make a little difference. But uh... Okay, what was a year? Okay. He's saying it can add up. The, the, the fractions becoming mixed numbers. 
How would they know a year? The day of January, February, March, April, May, June. The seasons. Yeah. There's a lunar calendar, but that's yes. like 2,000 years. Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a lunar calendar there. God gave the sun and the moon and the stars for the delineation of seasons. Times and seasons. And so they understood a year to be 12 months or 12 circuits, essentially, to getting back to the same place. So if we are to take years here as something other than years, then God's not a very good communicator. Was it significantly different? Was a lunar year different than our calendar year today? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But is it off by thousands? Or millions? Or billions? Yeah, no, it's not. And so we assume that these are generally years here. So 1656-ish. What specifically was that? I don't know, but we can pretty much hang our hat on that, give or take, probably a thousand. So what do we do with that? Is that true or is it not? Okay, we'll come back to that. Since the numbering of years was something that really didn't happen until A.D. times, it's hard to take today's standards and apply them to thousands of years before that. But it obviously right. was being done. But the creation hasn't changed. I mean, as far as the rotation around right. the sun, it's still one year, one lunar year, whatever, it's still the same. Right, but, but my point is it says Adam lived 130 years old. That, that was the important part, whether that was 129 and a half or 100. Yeah. That's not yeah. important. Right, well... To a, to a point, I can't, I can't, again, because of what is a year, I can't fine-tune it to his birthday, right. that kind of thing. But I can't say 130 years then is like 70 years now. No. That would be erroneous. I can't say that when, and we're going to get to Methuselah, the oldest guy in the Bible, 969 years, I can't go, well, that was really only 150 years like today, because nobody could live 969 years. And I say, scoff. I think all the individual statements are true. So it's true that Adam lived. So all the days of Adam's lives were 930 years. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. When you add them all together, it may not be exactly true, but it's going to be close because it's, it's based on a bunch of small true statements. Yes. So if we take all of those true statements and do the math, essentially, that's where we're at. We see that these people lived really long at that time. And ironically, if you do the math, Methuselah actually died the year of the flood. So did a lot of other people. <laughs> but he's the only patriarch, of all of the patriarchs, he's the only one that butted right up there against the flood. And like how close? You know, it, it would be 1656. It was really Yeah, 1656 is when he died. Yeah. But did he die before of old age? Uh, or was he taken in the flood? On, on my chart, there were... I don't remember, but I think there are about a half dozen people that died that same year of the patriarchs. Okay. 
I need, I need to go back to my notes because yeah. it's about 30 years ago that I did that. But. So if you read that, pretty much all you got are numbers in that chapter, except for one guy. And that was Enoch. Um, in verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years. He fathered Methuselah. Interesting. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. He is the only patriarch in here that says he walked with God. And he had a heart after the Lord. So passionate was his heart after the Lord that in verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Sweet. At the end of the chapter, Lamech, there's Lamech, different Lamech. Father Noah called his son Noah out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and painful toil from our hands. Probably not in the way you expected. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Again, doesn't say when they were all born, at least by then. So when the flood came, those guys were 100 years old. Um, next week, we are going to go into chapter 6. We are not going to cover the flood in great detail. But just some things to think about here is as we leave this these two chapters is we ought never be surprised by the corruption of man I mean we shouldn't of all people we shouldn't be the why we should know absolutely full well why um, and that too should point to us a clear understanding that judgment is coming but great word great word in scripture but God's incessant manifestations of grace are everywhere God's word is very clear so will we stand on God's word believe it as it is or are we going to equivocate and dismiss it and have our offerings not accepted as were Cain's